Well, thank you again for being here. We have begun a short study of the Old Testament book of Job. The book of Job and the name of Job are almost synonymous with suffering. But as we'll see as we go through this beautiful book, there's much more to be learned here than uh, just what the Bible teaches about suffering. In fact, I'd say that the greatest theme of the book of Job is the greatness of our God. Very briefly, last week we looked at the first two chapters and we considered uh, the three key figures in chapters 1 and 2, the first, of course, being Job himself. We read in Job verse, chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. To be blameless does not mean that Job never sinned. Every human being that's ever walked on the face of this earth, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, has sinned. When the scripture says Job was blameless, it uses a Hebrew word tom, which means complete. He was a person of integrity. He was a good, righteous person who feared God and turned away from evil. Another key figure in the first two chapters, of course, is God, the Lord himself. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 1 that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The sons of God is a reference to angels. The point is simply that the angelic beings, including even Satan, are below and accountable to God. God alone is sovereign, ruler, creator of all. He has no equal, no equal opposite. And again, I think the great theme of the book of Job is the greatness of God. Finally, we saw in the first two chapters the work of Satan. The name Satan means adversary or the accuser. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job. He uh, felt he could get Job to curse God. And though Job uh, was not afflicted because of his unrighteousness, he was described as being blameless, Job did suffer terribly. So much so that near the end of chapter 2, Job's wife says to him, do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. Apparently she believed that if Job would simply curse God, that would bring about the end of his life and the end of his suffering. Job replied to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And now we're introduced to three friends of Job. At least they're called friends <laughs> initially. Maybe not quite as warm friendship by the end of the book. And we read these words in Job 2, verses 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. 
They sound like good friends, don't they? This is what you might call a ministry of, of presence, just being with somebody in their suffering, not feeling like you've got to give them instruction or guidance or say anything, tell them anything, how to straighten out their lives. They sat there quietly with him. Sound like good friends to me. Seven days and nights, they don't even speak. They're just kind of there with him, seeking to comfort him in his affliction. But then the silence is broken, and it's broken by Job. Job himself speaks, and his speech begins in Job chapter 3 and verse 1, where we read, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Well, Job doesn't curse the Lord, but he does start to complain quite a bit about his affliction, about his life, understandably so. At the end of that chapter, chapter 3, he, he's still lamenting, and he says, My sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Well, now Job has broken the silence with his three friends. And he's poured out in Job chapter 3 a very long lament before the Lord. And now his friends speak. And the bulk of the book of Job consists of these speeches by Job's friends interspersed with replies by Job. Job's a pretty long book of the Old Testament, 42 chapters. Very beautifully written, poetic style book. The first friend that speaks is Eliphaz, and Eliphaz was apparently the, the oldest of the three, at least commentators suggest he is, and the leader of the three, because when God addresses the three at the end of the book, he addresses Eliphaz or Eliphaz. This is the first of three speeches by Eliphaz that are interspersed throughout the book. And he's a little more kind to Job than some of the other friends, or a little bit less harsh, perhaps. And Eliphaz answers Job now and says, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You must not be blameless after all, Job, even though the Lord said he was. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Well... That's Eliphaz. Later, Bildad speaks. Bildad the Shuhite. There's an old kid's joke that says he was the shortest man in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite. Think about that. You might get it by the end of the service a little bit. <laughs> then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? In the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Oh, wow. 
that was a horrible thing to say. Job had lost his children. Bildad says that. Bildad goes on, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. This is just part of Bildad's first speech. Uh, Eliphaz has three speeches in the book of Job. Bildad has three, and his friend Zophar has two. Now we read a portion of the first speech by Zophar. Zophar speaks, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. Job was covered with these horrible sores all over his body. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning, and you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. So Zophar says, here's your solution, Job. Put away your iniquity. Put away your iniquity. Well, again, uh, these friends have speeches throughout the book of Job, and in between these speeches of these various friends are replies by Job. And so there's, there's a lot of speech by Job in the book of Job, and um, it consists of a variety of different topics. I've just categorized three of those. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list of things Job talked about, but I've uh, grouped three uh, categories of Job's speech for us to consider this morning. Job's replies to his friends include, first of all, lament. There's a good bit of lament, and by lament I mean a, a complaint expressed before the Lord. Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words have been rash. Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Lament is a common category in Scripture. If you read through the book of Psalms, you'll find that a significant portion of the Psalms consists of lament. That is, the psalmist, the psalm writer, is pouring out complaint before the Lord. For example, Psalm 22 in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Jesus himself quoted that verse on the cross. We know it's inspired scripture. My point is just that it's not necessarily a sin to lament or to complain to God. God is not threatened when you and I are hurting, and pour out our heart before him. In fact, the book of Psalms actually encourages this. Psalm 62 in verse 8 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. When you're hurting deeply, 
and not understanding why, it's fine to pour out your heart to God and tell him that. But remain reverent. Remember who he is when you do this. And remember that he loves you even when you don't understand what's happening and when you don't feel his presence or see him. For example, you might say, Father, I have prayed and prayed and prayed and not seen what I prayed for. Lord, you know I am hurting. I am confused. I don't even sense your presence. But Lord, I trust you. I choose to trust you. I choose to believe that you are good and you love me. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So Job's speeches include a significant amount of lament, just as does the Old Testament book of Psalms. But there's another category in Job's speeches, and that is criticism of his friends. And Job has some choice words for his friends. In Job 13, verses 4 and 5, he says, As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. In other words, you are not helping me at all. These long speeches. You are worthless physicians. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Why couldn't you do what you did the first seven days? And sit there and not say anything. He continues in Job 16. <coughs> he answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. And there's, there's another category in Job's uh, replies to his friends. And this to me is the most uh, beautiful of the three. And that is Job's declaration of God's greatness. There's some beautiful scripture in Job about the greatness of God. For example, <coughs> we read these words. They come from uh, Job chapter 9. Beautiful chapter of the book. Job answered and said, truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, and who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. I love this chapter, especially the last two verses at the end of Job chapter 9, they are critically important because here Job, in all of his pain, in all of his suffering, in all of his lamenting, here Job is going to prophesy about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 9 when he says this, of God. For he is not a man 
as I am that I might answer him. That we should come together to trial, come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Now, those are critically important words in Job. There's no arbiter between us. There's no arbitrator. There's no mediator. What Job's saying here is this. God's so high above me. He's so great. He's so far above me. I need somebody to intercede. I need somebody to bring me to God. I need someone between us, somebody who can lay his hand on both. I need an arbitrator. I need a mediator to bring me to God. And the good news is that we have one. And that mediator, of course, is Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, when he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus became like us to bear our sin and bring us to God. As Peter says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, to bring us to God. The book of Hebrews teaches us that since we are flesh and blood, Jesus partook of flesh and blood to become like us. He becomes then our great high priest who represents us before God the Father so that we can come boldly with confidence before the throne of grace he who ever lives to intercede for us. And the beautiful word used by the Apostle John in the letter of 1 John chapter 2 is that Jesus is now our advocate with the Father. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is our mediator, our advocate, our high priest, our intercessor. He has reached out his hands. He's become like us. He's borne our judgment. He's brought us to God. And Job, in his beautiful declaration of the greatness of God, is pointing to this, the gospel of Jesus. Before we take communion, I just want to quickly reflect on what we can learn from Job in this conversation between Job and his friends. First of all, I think one of the things we learn is this. It's unwise to think we must explain to people why they are suffering. At the end of the book, the Lord is going to say these words to the apparently the oldest of the three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. The lesson here is that when you talk to people about suffering, don't feel you've got to find a reason for everything. The very beginning of the book in chapter 2, God had said to Satan, you incited me to destroy him without reason. Without a reason, you've incited me to try to do that. Yet Job's friends are coming up with reasons. Secondly, it's unwise to think we must understand and explain 
to everyone everything about God and God's ways. Because we're, we're not going to understand all there is to know in this life about God. God himself says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. A lot of people, when they think about sharing the gospel, sharing with their friends, fear that they're going to be asked a question that they cannot answer. There are many questions I can't answer uh, when it comes to, to uh, questions that have come to me about the scripture. Often a person who's not a Christian it may ask you as, as a Christian, what about all the suffering in the world? What about all the people who've never heard? I don't think I've ever met anyone where if you could answer all 10 of their questions, they'd say, okay, you've answered them satisfactorily. Now I'll become a Christian. <laughs> Doesn't quite seem to work that way. You can just be honest and say, you know, I, I honestly don't have an answer for that. Sometimes people have asked uh, about people that have never heard. What about all the people you're sharing the gospel with them? They say, what about all the people in the world have never heard about them? Are you telling me they're all, they're all going to hell? They're all going to perish. They've, they've never heard about Jesus. Simply say to them, you know, I'm not sure I can give you an answer that will be satisfactory to your question. But one thing I think is very clear in the Bible, and that is, that is that God is completely just. There is no injustice with God. No one will ever be able to truthfully say that God is not just. And the Bible also is very clear that God is loving. The Bible says God is love. And so I think we can safely leave those folks who may have never heard in the hands of a God who's both loving and just. But for the moment, I'm interested in you. Since you have heard the gospel, is there... Anything keeping you from putting your faith in the one who died on the cross to give his life for you? You don't have to answer every question. Just be honest with people. Be honest with them. Another thing we learn from Job's friends is this. It's possible to have right doctrine, but to deliver it in the wrong way and at the wrong time. As you read through the book of Job, you'll see some of the things that his friends said were truth. Some were accurate. Some were right. We don't always have to tell people everything we know, do we? Often it's better if we do not. And then finally, a lesson from the conversation with Job and his friends we've already seen is that we need an arbiter, an arbitrator, a mediator, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And today we are going to celebrate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us by partaking of what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. You may have grown up in a church where it was called the Eucharist. We celebrate this simply because Jesus, before going to the cross, uh, met with his disciples and told them, do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to reflect on some words written by the Apostle Paul about this very important thing we call communion. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. But when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you <coughs> excuse me, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remarkable statement. Often as you take this little wafer, this little piece of bread, and drink this bit of juice in this cup, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. And I think that means we're making a visible proclamation that we have received the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross for us. We're saying, by faith, I've received what Jesus has done for me. This is why I think it's important if you take communion that you have sincerely genuinely receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. This is not a mere religious ritual. This is something that expresses a personal relationship of faith. And if you've not yet done that and would like to do that, this would be a wonderful time to do it. And I'll give you an opportunity for that in just a moment. Paul then gives some words of warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Taking communion is a good time to search our hearts as Christians and certainly for those who are not yet Christians to consider placing their faith in Christ alone and consider the importance of doing that before taking communion. So would you join me as we pray now and take a moment of silence to prepare for this. Father, I pray for anyone here who is uncertain about his or her relationship with you, that today you would bring that one to true saving faith in Jesus. And if that's you, I would encourage you simply to express your trust in in Christ who died on the cross to pay for your sins, your willingness to receive him as Savior and Lord. Fathers, we wait on you in silence now. Would you prepare us to take this, the Lord's Supper, in the right way in your eyes?